All right, we're going to read the Bible now. So if you've got your Bibles there, please flick them open. Uh, the first reading is from Ezekiel, chapter 36, 24 to 27. For I will take you out of the nations. I'll bring you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Uh, The second passage is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead and your own private, uh, ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment." Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further directions. Thanks, James. Hi, everyone. I'm well. Never had an auction uh, here in this building before, Uh, so just want to reiterate, that's not something we do normally. Uh, If you're here for the first time, it's not something you can expect every week, Um, but uh, it is something, we want to put a spotlight on what we're doing in January as we hold out the good news of Jesus, and we want to do that free of charge, Uh, and so that's that's, uh, what we're hoping for Good News Week and for Carol's, to hold out the good news of Jesus are to a community who really need to hear about him. Now, what I want to do uh, as we start this morning is show you a few snippets from the Bean movie. You know, Mr. Bean, 
Uh, I know it's a bit of a flashback, uh, but most of you will have seen this. Uh, what happens, Mr Bean is kind of mistaken as an art critic. We'll just uh, cut to the video. So he's mistaken as an art critic. They give him a preview of this painting, Whistler's Mother. He's not impressed. Uh, he, kind of, he kind of dusts the edge of it, sneezes on it, and then the da- disaster kind of unravels from there, he tries to fix up his mistake. He had pen on his handkerchief, so he's now put ink on Whistler's mother. And uh, what do you do from here? So this is a $50 million painting that's about to be unveiled. Trying to fix up his mistake. And you just watch and you just, it, just get, it just goes from bad to worse. Tries to fix up his mistake. And here it is, the unveiling of the new Whistler's mother. Uh, and, 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 and that, I've just taken, you know, about you know, 15 minutes of the movie and compressed it for you. Uh, and along the way, you sort of feel like calling out, stop, stop, don't come on. But he just keeps on going and he takes a $50 million painting and just destroys it. Now, as we come on to 1 Corinthians 11, what we're going to see is that the, the church in Corinth, some of the members were doing that when it came to the church. The precious church of God, here are my three points for today, by their actions, they were despising the church. They failed to appreciate the preciousness, the beauty of Jesus' church. And so Paul warns them of the destructive consequences of despising the church. Uh, And that challenge is there for us today. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we consider these things together. Father, we do pray that you will guard us from despising your precious church. Help us to understand and appreciate afresh, even today, just how beautiful and how precious your church is to you. And please guard us from ever despising your church and experiencing your consequences for that. Rather, we pray that you'll set before us a vision of the beauty and wonder so that we will honour your church and so honour the Lord Jesus who has drawn us together. Amen. So point number one, by their actions, some of the members in the Corinthian church were despising the church of God. Verse 17. So you need 1 Corinthians chapter 11 open in front of you. We're going to start off in verse 17. In the following directives, Paul says, I have no praise for you. So some of the things the Corinthians were doing, they were doing well. But in this regard, he says, I have no praise for you for your meetings, your church gatherings are doing more harm than good. Now, that is an extraordinary thing for the Apostle Paul to say. Paul loved the church. He was all on about gathering people together to meet around God, around his word. But he says there's behavior going on in the church at Corinth 
that is actually doing more harm than good, and so they'd be better off not even getting together. Now, he doesn't want that as the outcome. He wants them to come together, but to address these destructive behaviours. Verse 18, he says, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Uh, If you've been reading through 1 Corinthians, you'll realise simmering behind the scenes are these divisions, disunity, factions uh, that were dividing the church in Corinth. Now, up on the screen, what I've got is a kind of a, a snapshot of Corinthian society outside the church. Uh, And so Corinthian society, Roman society in general, was very hierarchical. So you had at the top of the tree what were called the patricians, that is the elite wealthy, uh, independent, lots of money, lots of household servants. Uh, So they were the, the top of the tree. Then you had the plebeians. Have you heard of the plebs? Uh, they were the plebeians, they were the tradies, the leather workers, all that sort of stuff, stonemasons. And then you had the slaves, the bottom of the social hierarchy, uh, the house servants. Now, the church was meant to be different to that. All God's children are meant to be equal. So, uh, you know, so we come here today. So many differences. You know, we come from so many different social backgrounds. Some of us, uh, uh, you know, get high-paid jobs. Some of us are tradies. Some of us feel like slaves, uh, even in our own homes. Uh, Rich, poor, uh, different nations we're from, male and female. But we are all equally valued. We are all equally loved through Christ. And so there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. I want to repeat that again. Because some of you will come into church feeling like, I don't belong. These people are better than me. Some of us come feeling like I'm a second-class citizen because of my past or because of just the social situation that I'm in. And I want to appeal to you, there is no such thing as a second-class Christian You come into this building and we are equal. Equally sinners forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's this community. That's the church in Corinth. But church in Corinth was complicated uh, because when people gathered, um, they would have gathered in one of the houses of the wealthy members And they didn't have like a weekend like we had. You know how we have a weekend that kind of makes it kind of easy? If you prioritise church, you can make it here in our context. But they didn't have a weekend. And so so you kind of had to squeeze church around a busy life. The elite wealthy members, they would have been able to turn up to church early because they had the freedom, the flexibility... That's what wealth does for you. It buys freedom and opportunity. And so the the elite wealthy, the patricians, they could turn up to church early uh, and they could kind of start getting into the meal and the celebration. The plebeians, the plebs, well, they would have had to finish their work up. 
uh, and then they might have arrived late. The slaves, well, their attendance at church would have completely depended on their slave owners. And if their slave owners were good, they might have uh, let them off early at night after they'd served the evening meal at their household. Sometimes they would have made it, sometimes they wouldn't. But probably they were arriving last of all. And what was happening is those who arrived early, they started eating and drinking together. And they did it without thinking of the needs of those who were coming later. And so by the time the plebs and the slaves arrived, there wasn't much food left. It's kind of like the party was over and it was just the dregs. Week after week, uh, what was happening is uh, God's people were dividing along class lines. And Paul says it is a tragedy. The gathering of God's people had become divided where Jesus had laid down his life to unite us and to do away with those divisions. Jesus gathers a people from Jew and Gentile, rich, poor. All of those differences recede into the background as we come to Jesus and find our place among the people of God. But by their actions, Paul says, you're despising the church. Uh, Verse 20 He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. We're going to have the Lord's Supper a little bit later. A meal of remembrance around the Lord Jesus. But Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, because when you're eating, some of you go ahead, you have your own private suppers. As a result, one remains hungry, those who arrive late. Another is getting ahead early and getting drunk. Verse 24, do you despise the church of God, by humiliating those who have nothing. Now, I want to ask, what is this going to look like for us? Uh, Because I don't think the exact problem that was going on in Corinth is happening here for us. When we have the Lord's Supper, it's very tokenistic, kind of a little bit of bread, a little bit of juice. But how might divisions form in our church? I've got a few uh, suggestions, Uh, and one is, are there factions or favouritism that take place in our church family? Have you got an in-crowd and those who feel on the outer? Is there gossip and grumbling going on in our church, where rather than building one another up, we are tearing one another down with our words and our actions? Is there pride and arrogance where some members look down on others as second rate uh, and so people feel kind of lesser? Because remember, we come on equal footing no matter what our background, no matter what our past, no matter what our social status. So I want to say what we need to do is take an honest look at ourselves and our church family. And if any of those things, if you look at any of those things and recognise them in yourself, then today is an opportunity to do something about it. We need to take Paul's rebuke to heart. Do not despise the church of God. Because it is, it is precious in God's sight. 
Like Mr. Bean standing there sneezing on Whistler's mother, just completely unaware of the preciousness of this work of art. That is how some of the members in Corinth were treating the church of God. And so what Paul does is he wants to show them that they're doing it and why it's such a tragedy, why the church of God is so precious. So this is point number two. Point number one, by their actions they were despising the church. Point number two, they failed to appreciate the preciousness of the church. And at this point he reminds them of the Last Supper. So verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. What Paul does to address these issues is he takes them back to the night Jesus was betrayed and that meal Jesus celebrated with his disciples. It was a Passover meal. Uh, And for generation after generation, year after year, since 1500 BC, since that rescue from Egypt, remember when they, they took the Passover lamb, painted its blood on the door frames, they were slaves in Egypt, but that night God rescued them from Egypt. He rescued them from judgment. He brought them out into the freedom of their own land. And night after night, sorry, year after year, what the, what the Jews would do was take a lamb and they would kill it in their own household. They'd, paint, uh, they'd, they'd drink wine and say, this is the blood of the lamb uh, that was killed for us back in Egypt when God rescued us. They'd take bread and break it. This is the bread, the unleavened bread that we ate when we left Egypt. Year after year, they would remember the great moment of rescue. But on the night before Jesus died, he transformed that ancient meal into a meal of remembrance of him. So verse 23, Jesus took the bread and instead of remembering back to Egypt, look at what he does. Verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. No longer was this meal primarily about Egypt and remembering that great escape. Now, the focus of the meal is on Jesus and his death. He's offering his body in sacrifice for us. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And since that night when Jesus died, year after year, regularly when God's people gather, they reenact that meal. And what we do is we take bread just as Jesus did on that night, we break the bread, we hand it out, and we remember that Jesus gave his body in sacrifice for us. Uh, And just like Jesus took the cup, we take the cup, we drink it in remembrance of Jesus' blood poured out for us, for our forgiveness. At the heart of the meal is forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus won us, 
the way that we all come as sinners, undeserving, but that we are made clean and forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And verse 26, Paul says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, what does it mean? I want to I spend a little while on this. What does it mean to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? What is it that takes place as we have the Lord's Supper where we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Well, the words we speak are a proclamation, aren't they? So we take the bread, this is the body of Christ given for you. We take the, the cup, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you, for your forgiveness. But I want to say there is something more going on than that. And what I want to suggest is that the church gathering itself, the, the very gathering of God's people is itself a proclamation. So it's not just the words we say, but the gathering, which is a proclamation of the power of the death of Jesus to create this community. Now, I want to unpack what I mean. So throughout the Bible, the word scattering is a word that is used to describe the judgment of God. Uh, And so when sinful humanity rise up against God, God's judgment is to scatter them. So you see it at the Tower of Babel. Remember, humanity united to rival God in proud arrogance and defiance. Genesis 11, so the Lord scattered them from there all over the whole earth. But this scattering is not just something that humanity generally experiences. The old covenant people of God, the people of Israel, will experience scattering as they defy God, as they worship the idols of the nations around. So Psalm 44, you gave us up to be devoured like sheep and you have scattered us among the nations. So again and again, and I've only given two brief examples, but again and again, scattering is a sign of God's judgment. The fact that the world is so disunified is evidence of a world that is full of sin and a world that is experiencing the judgment of God, scattering us uh, among the nations. But God promised a new covenant. And so much of this new covenant expectation, well, it's about forgiveness, where God would cleanse us of our sin, uh, wipe away sin and shame completely. But part of God's salvation would be to gather a people once again. So Isaiah chapter 11, God will raise a banner for the nations. He will gather the exiles of Israel. Isaiah 40, God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. See, God's new covenant salvation is about forgiveness, yes, but it's also about creating a people and gathering a people, changing our hearts. So the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church, simply means gathering. 
And I've actually written to the uh, writers of the NIV, the uh, NIV kind of translation committee, and I've suggested they change the word from church to gathering. Uh, it's not been very successful. Uh, but anyway, it's just a discussion that I have. But when God's people gather, we celebrate Jesus' death in our place. We proclaim his death. We proclaim his death not only in the bread and the cup that we eat in remembrance of what he did, but the very gathering himself. This gathering here this morning is a proclamation to our world of the victory of Jesus. So you look at this gathering here and you think, why would this group come together? We've got kind of nothing in common except for Jesus. And he unites us together. In a world of sin, people are scattered and divided. There is disunity, hatred, war, gossip, slander, disunity. But Jesus overturns all that. And he takes people from every situation of life, from every social standing, from every nation under heaven, and he gathers them together as one people. And all those differences that mean so much in our world, racial differences, social differences, class differences, all those things recede into the background as Jesus creates us one. So I want to say, brothers and sisters, when we come together, our very gathering is a declaration to the world that Jesus is king. His work is is being effective in our world. He is gathering of people. He is changing hearts. He is bringing out forgiveness. He's undoing the work of Satan in our world. Now this week, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are so many sporting events throughout the world. Huge crowds are gathering in Japan for the swimming, the cricket in England, the soccer here in Australia, there's the rugby down in Melbourne, huge crowds are gathering, millions watching live, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions throughout the world. But this gathering here, this gathering is more significant than any of those. Now, do you believe that? Rhonda does. Uh, do you believe it? So, these, these gatherings... Taylor, take Taylor Swift, right? Did you notice this huge thing about a month ago with Taylor Swift? Uh, people desperately wanting to be part of the crowd at the Taylor Swift gathering. Who got tickets? Okay, none of you, because you all missed out. Um, so, so, but desperately trying to be part of that crowd at Taylor Swift. Here's, here's something. This... Gathering here today is more significant than any of those crowds. It is more significant than the crowd at a Taylor Swift concert. It's more significant than our parliament when it meets. It's more significant than the United Nations gathering when it meets. Now, our world doesn't think so. Our world looks at this little gathering and just thinks... Our world is dismissive. Because this is a small gap. You get more at Westfield Tugra than you get here. And our world thinks this is small and insignificant. 
But if you were to ask Jesus, what's on this weekend? What's on on the Central Coast this weekend? Jesus would say, my people are gathering. And for him, any other gathering just is, is utterly trivial in comparison to this gathering. And Jesus would say, this gathering is the reason I died. Because I forgave each one of these and I brought them together. And I've overcome hatred and animosity and division. I'm creating one people. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that your Lord and Saviour regards this as the most important gathering in our world today? And I'm not just talking about the lakes gathering. There are I don't know, what do you reckon, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of gatherings like this throughout the world. And Jesus, Jesus says, that's where the action is. That is the most important thing going on in our world this weekend. Do you agree? There's the question. Do you agree with that? And I don't, I don't want you just to think, because oh, it's easy to go, oh, yeah, I agree. But I want you to think, do my actions reflect that conviction? Um, because I want to point something out, that it does feel more and more like God's people are treating church as a hobby than as a first priority. Right. Uh, and let me unpack a little bit what I mean by that. Um, so I don't think any of us think of church as irrelevant or unimportant. But I think a lot of us would say, well, I've got a lot of important things in my week. And church is one of them. But sometimes in a busy week with competing priorities, church is just going to have to miss out. And, and Jesus speaks into that attitude and he says, no, you've got it wrong. Yes, you've got a lot of important things in your life and in your week, but this gathering has to come first because this is the reason I died. Yes, there'll be a great gathering at the end of history when all of God's people from every nation, from throughout history will come together. That will be the ultimate, but this gathering is a real expression of that now. And it is important. Um, and so, so, what I want to encourage you to do is to think about what is, God, what is Jesus doing by his death? He's gathering a people. And this people is a declaration, a proclamation that he is king that his death has made a difference in our world. His death has forgiven a people and united a people. And when we come together, we get to remind each other of the beautiful things that Jesus has done for us, the beautiful hope of the future, and the reality that even now we can experience something of being part of the people of God. So, come back to um, our headings. By their actions, some of the Corinthians were despising the church. 
They fail to appreciate the preciousness of the church. And so Paul warns them of the consequences of despising the church. And it's much heavier than we expect. This is heavy stuff. Verse 27, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Now, what is it to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Wouldn't it be terrible to come along and eat the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, but actually be inviting the judgment of God on ourselves? I remember when I was a teenager, I was, I was a follower of Jesus. I wasn't very mature, but I trusted Jesus. Uh, and I, I knew that he'd forgiven my sins. And in the little Baptist church I went along to, I would happily, joyfully take part in the Lord's Supper. One day, a girl from school invited me to her church. Uh, There were basically no Christians in my year, and I don't even think this girl was a Christian, but, you know, I I was kind of interested in girls. Uh, And and anyway, interested in possibilities. Anyway, I went along with her uh, to her family's church, and at the end of the service, the bread and the cup were being passed around, and her mum leaned over and said to me, if you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure you're a Christian, you're better off not taking part. And, um, and here was me, for the whole of my life to that point, I had taken part in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it was a meal of great joy, uh, a meal of remembrance. But at that point, I was genuinely left feeling a sense of doubt Am I the real deal as a Christian? Am I worthy to eat the Lord's Supper? And let me unpack this a little bit. Because I want to say the bottom line is, none of us are worthy. Not one of us is worthy on our own merits to take part in Jesus Christ. If on our own merits, we couldn't approach the Lord Jesus. At the heart of the Lord's Supper is the message of forgiveness and grace, that unworthy sinners like you and me can be washed clean, that he qualifies us to be children of God. How good is that? And I'm not worthy because of anything I've done. Jesus' death alone is what qualifies sinners like me to be worthy. We must never lose sight of that. But the Corinthians were eating in a manner that was unworthy. Uh, And I want to suggest, well, it says they were in danger of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. How is it? What were they doing that was unworthy? Well, by their actions... They were destroying the unity of God's people. I think that's at the heart of this passage. The way there were factions and divisions, they're the very things that Jesus died to break down. Walls and barriers and hostility. Jesus died to break all that down and bring us together. 
And so how unworthy to celebrate the Lord's death, but in a way that is ununified, in a way that shows divisions, in a way that says, I'm more important than you, I'm first class, you're second class. By their actions, they were despising the church that Jesus had created by his own blood. So verse 29, he says, Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Again, I want to ask the question, what is it to eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ? Now, it could be that we just go through the motions. Anything can become like that, can't it? We just turn up, go through the motions, and it becomes a religious habit. Uh, We turn the, the Lord's Supper into a religious ritual that we do without thinking about it. That could be what Paul's talking about. But I actually think Paul has something else in mind. See, what is the body of Christ? Well, there's the physical body of Christ that he gave on the cross. But the body of Christ is his people as well. And throughout this letter to the Corinthians, Paul will keep talking about us, God's people, as the body of Christ. All right. Uh, If we come to remember Jesus, but somehow despise his body, the church, then we put ourselves in danger. We actually invite the judgment of God. And look at what Paul says. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep is a euphemism, right? They've died. Now, this is heavy, isn't it? The way they have conducted themselves in the Lord's Supper, the way they have created unnecessary divisions and social classes amongst the people of God, that is so serious to God that it has actually brought his judgment on his own people. And some of the Christians were getting sick, and some of the Christians were dying, and Paul says that's not an accident. That's not just random sickness and death. That is actually the judgment of God on you for your behavior uh, as you come and despise the church of God. And so you realize this is a serious, weighty thing, don't you? The very thing that Jesus died to create, we must be so careful that we honor it. Uh, and that we build it up rather than tearing it down. That is the church. So come back to what I said earlier. Are there factions and favoritism in our church? And are these things something that you are caught up in somehow? Where you've got an in crowd and those who feel on the outer? Let's do something about that. Let's not allow that to continue unchecked? Is there gossip and grumbling in our church where instead of building one another up, we secretly, behind the scenes, tear one another down? We can't allow that to continue. Uh, It is too serious a thing. Our world treats it as trivial, gossip. Our world loves it. But it actually, it, it, it destroys the very work of Jesus. 
in uniting a people? Is there pride and arrogance where some members look down on others as second rate? It must not be like that among the people of God. Now, if we take an honest look at ourselves and recognise any of these things in our own behaviour, Jesus calls on us to urgently repent today, to not treat this as a light and trivial thing. Don't allow it to continue because I hope you've seen there is too much at stake. This, This is... This is the priceless, precious work of God. Uh, We mustn't despise it and destroy it. And here's a great question for us to finish up on, and I'll leave you to reflect on this. So there's the negative, what do I need to repent of? But here's the positive. What can I do to build and strengthen the precious church of God? If this gathering is so significant that Jesus died to make it a reality, what part can I play in building it and strengthening it uh, so, that it so that it really does proclaim to the world that Jesus is king and that his death has made a powerful difference? And these people are different. They love each other uh, and they are united by something that is very powerful, and that is the Lord Jesus and his spirit and the hope of eternal life. Why don't you just spend a little bit of time reflecting and praying, and then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment. love to lead us in prayer. God our Father, we do not presume to come to you today trusting in our own goodness, but our trust is in your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We are not worthy, but Jesus washes us clean from every sin. All our guilt, all our shame, washed away by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus paid it all. And thank you that Jesus brings us not only your new covenant of forgiveness, but he pours out his Holy Spirit so that we are adopted into your family. We thank you even for this gathering here today. Thank you for your love shown to us in Jesus that we are so precious as individuals and as a body. Please forgive us for all our sin. And especially today, we pray you forgive us for our factions and favoritism, for gossip and grumbling, pride and arrogance. They are things we learn from the world, but they are not 
to be part of your people. Forgive us and by your spirit change us. Help us, help each one of us to to love and honour Jesus as we build and strengthen his body, the church. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we are going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper uh, together now, but I just before I just want to tell you of a beautiful moment from a movie to set the scene. Uh, please bear with me because it won't sound relevant at first. Uh, but right near the end of the Lord of the Rings, you have this mighty battle. The forces of evil have gathered at Minas Tirith, uh, and they are going to overthrow the city. And one of the little hobbits, Pippin, is there in the city. He feels like all is lost. And then he hears these trumpets, these horns in the distance. The riders of Rohan had come to defeat the forces of evil. And look at, look at what it says in the book. You don't get this in the movie, but look at what it says in the book. Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had lifted from him and he stood listening to the horns and it seemed to him they would break his heart with joy and never in after years could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes so so when he's here when he hears a trumpet for the rest of his life it just wells up tears in his eyes because he remembers that moment that moment when the Saviour came, uh, that moment of his rescue from the forces of evil. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what the Lord's Supper is to us. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember again that moment of our salvation. If not for Jesus, we would remain in our sin, lost, under the judgment of God, But we remember his body given for us, his blood poured out for us. We remember the new covenant of forgiveness, God's spirit poured out to make us his sons and daughters, God's spirit making us one with each other. And for many of us, it is hard to eat this bread and drink this cup without tears coming to our eyes. Uh, And they are tears when we remember the cost of the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago. But they are tears of joy where where we think, if not for Jesus, I would remain lost. But he paid it all. So, I want you to come and take part. Uh, So what what we're going to do is, uh, just in an orderly way, come and take a bit of bread a bit of juice. There's some gluten-free bread there as well. There's tables here, a couple of tables up the back as well. And the, the best way to do this is if we take it, bring it back to our seats, and then we'll eat and drink together so that as one body we can remember the beautiful things that the Lord Jesus did for us. So just take a moment to uh, go and get the bread in the cup.
I want to remind you again of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 as he remembers back to the night Jesus was betrayed. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's eat and drink with thanks and joy. God, our Father, we want to thank you again for Jesus. His body given for us. His blood poured out for our forgiveness. Forgiving us and making us one, we proclaim his death until he comes. Amen.